This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our University of Maryland PhD program podcasts. And I am Connie Dolan, one of the faculty for the PhD program. And I am joined by Lynn McPherson, who is of course the executive director of the palliative care program at University of Maryland. And we are thrilled today to have Betty Farrell um, to talk to. And many of you have heard Betty's name um, and seen a lot of her great work, but um, I think we should just emphasize some of the things that Betty has done. Betty has been in nursing for a long time. Um, she has expertise in clinical care. She's focused on pain management. And so, um, you know, she's really helped with um, palliative care and oncology. She's looked at quality of life. She's looked at palliative care. Um, she currently is the director of nursing research and education and a professor at the City of Hope. Medical Center in California. Um, she's a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and also the National Academy of Medicine, which is always very proud to see our nursing colleagues um, in leadership positions. And she has been directing the End of Life Nursing Education Consortium or LNEC for the last 20 years. Um, amazing um, with such an impact of over a million people who have been educated and that's not only nurses that's a lot of different disciplines but she'll tell us more about that um, betty's been very involved with the national consensus for quality palliative care clinical practice guidelines which you know as students we will have you be looking at during the semester um, she's edited the oxford textbook of palliative nursing and that's in its fifth edition um, and she's written a number of other important papers in terms of spirituality so we are so thrilled just to hear Betty's perspective from, um, from a lot of different angles within nursing, from starting off from hospice to thinking about that. So Betty, I know I've only mentioned a little bit and scratched the surface. Do you wanna talk a little bit more about what you're proud of or introducing yourself so that the students even have more of a broad range of your expertise? Sure, well, first of all, I'm really glad to be a part of this interview and I have deep respect um, for both Connie and Lynn, and am really, really excited about this PhD program. And so the first thing I'd like to do is just congratulate anyone who's watching this because you're a part of this program. You truly will be pioneers in the United States. Um, you're pioneering a new role. This notion of a doctorate in palliative care is remarkable, amazing. And so congratulations. Um, just as a bit of background, so I began my career 44 years ago this year, and I started my career as a nurse working on an oncology unit in a hospital in Oklahoma. And just sort of as a part of history, the, an interesting thing is the week that I started, uh, I actually started working as a student. So a year before I really graduated from my bachelor's program in nursing, but the day that I wandered up to the unit to see where I was going to be working uh, was a momentous day because it was the first day that they were actually going to have an oncology unit. 
before that, cancer patients were just scattered throughout the hospital. If you had ovarian cancer, you probably were over on the OBGYN unit. So you were dealing with ovarian cancer with you know, a newborn baby in the room next to you. And um, you, you know, similarly, if you had breast cancer, you, know, you were over you know, on the GYN floor also or wherever. And so at that point in time, you know, we didn't talk about death. We didn't talk about terminal illness. And we didn't even say the word oncology. Um, and my first day walking into the unit, I always share my career began because I stepped out on the floor to, to check out this unit. And I saw this controversy, something was going on. People were you know, very agitated. And the controversy was that the hospital had decided to finally form an oncology unit. And so they had sent um, and they'd sent the engineers up to hang a sign on the wall that said oncology unit. Wow. And as the engineers were trying to hang up the sign, there were all of these people very distressed. You can't, you can't hang that on the wall. We can't say that. You know, people won't, they'll, they'll know they have cancer or, you know, they won't want to come on this floor. So if you think about the, how far we've come from, we wouldn't even say the word cancer or oncology to now we have this field of palliative care it's pretty remarkable. And so I consider myself incredibly fortunate to live this history. So I worked in oncology um, for the first three years after I graduated with my bachelor's degree in nursing in inpatient oncology. And then the other big historic event was um, after three years working in the hospital, it was at a time where the hospital was the Mecca, all healthcare happened in the hospital. And if people were sick at home, they, we would say, well, come on in. And and you know, stay. And so uh, suddenly what seemed like really overnight, this thing called DRGs came into being. And so we all got this you know, message saying, you got to get people out of the hospital. And we thought, what? We're going to send you know, these terminally ill people home? How can that be? And so that was really my first interest was to uh, thinking, how can these people leave the oncology unit? And there was, no, there was no such thing as hospice. There were a handful in the country and none in my state. And so I was really intrigued with what's gonna happen you know, in people's homes. So that was my interest. And that's really how I decided to go back and get my master's and then my doctorate is I thought, we have to understand what's happening to patients and families. And then you know, we need data. And that was my point of, going back from my doctorate, it's like, we have to change, you know, we have to advocate for these patients and families. And so how do I do that? Well, I need to be a researcher, I need data. And so that was my entry into the world of research. And, um, and now I've been at City of Hope for the last 32 years and as a researcher in this field. So it's, um, I feel like I'm a part of history and what a tremendous honor it's been to be a part of a field as the field has developed. Dr. Farrell, I have to tell you one of my favorite books early in my career, I can picture it in my mind with purple and it was called Pain in the Elderly. Yes. And, uh, yeah, sure. that book and it was, it was wonderful. It was from IASP. So thank yeah. you for your career worth. Incredible. <laughs> you know, I always, um, as you mentioned pain, you know, I was thinking about this just recently and Honestly, the first few years of my career, there was no such thing as palliative care. There was no field. The word literally didn't exist. And I started in pain management. And, and now, you know, later in my career, I look back and I think I was really fortunate to have that experience because 
I got to start with one thing, pain. Mm -hmm. And I learned, you know, methodology and I wrote and I, I learned around one problem. And I think that was really helpful because then later in my career, when that, when my net broadened to be all the palliative care and we were dealing with physical and psychological and spiritual and social and all aspects, I, I always feel like I cut my teeth on, um, on pain management and, and I'm really glad that I had that opportunity. So, you know, when you think about um, all of this, um, and you think I'm going to just focus a little bit on nursing because I feel like sometimes we talk about hospice and palliative care now and we forget about the, the how much nursing was at the forefront of this. Um, you have some thoughts about that and, and maybe also not only where we are, but in the sense of maybe where nursing needs to be. Sure. You know, again, when I started the first hospice in my state in 1980, and, you know, our program, like many programs in the country, often began as purely a volunteer effort. And so it was, you know, nurses who had other full-time jobs, you know, or physicians or, a, you know, a clergy person from the local church who, um, they, were, they were starting these community hospice programs completely as, you know, volunteer efforts or perhaps there was a local VNA or you know home care agency that was going to try to develop you know a bit of a hospice program so um, but you know thinking of Florence Wald you know who of course went from Yale New Haven you know went over to the UK observed the care at St Christopher's and then came back to America um, I always remember, you know, the work of Jean Benaliel and her colleagues in California, and that was one of the, you know, moments that really caught my attention. And that is, um, these were nurses who, again, trying to just make the case that people who were dying were being really isolated and not cared for. And they actually did a study where they timed how much time it took for nurses in the hospital to answer the call bell of a dying patient versus a patient expected to recover. And, and the, you know, their results showed that the dying patients were put in the last rooms in the hallway, far away from the nurse's station, and it took the staff more time to get to them. They were this total avoidance. And, um, and I, you know, I think so much how important that early work was to document um, what it was like when we still didn't even say the word death. You know, I can remember I started my career in 1977. It was very close in time with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's publication, you know, on death and dying. And I remember just being just in awe of this notion of, you know, these chaplains working with, uh, you know, with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross to just make the case that there were terminally ill people. You know, I think probably many people know the history that chaplains came to Elizabeth Ubaras and said, help us. Um, and so they went throughout this huge, you know, thousand bed hospital in Chicago and they went unit by unit. So the chaplains thought, well, if the doctor asked, you know, if this doctor helps us, but they went unit by unit and they asked the question, you know, which patients on the unit you know, on this unit um, are not expected to recover or are dying. And unit after unit after unit in this thousand bed hospital, everybody said, oh no, no one's dying here. Um, so, you know, 
for me to think back in the 1970s and even you know 1980s that where we still didn't say the word, we didn't admit people were dying, we uh, had no processes in place to care for them, that there was no such thing as a bereavement program, that, I mean, there was such a void. Um, one of my personal relics is um, in 1980, when I started that first home-based hospice program, we put an advertisement, you know, an ad in the local newspaper uh, to recruit for staff. And it, you know, said, it was this home care agency and the ad basically said, you know, recruiting staff to work with a new hospice program. So I placed the ad. A few days later, the newspaper office called me and they said, we get, we're getting all these phone calls from people who, who are saying, well, what is that? And also, how do you even pronounce it? And so they sent me back the ad and we had to revise the ad to explain what the word hospice meant and how to say it. Oh and so God. I still have in my, you know, my archives, the, a copy of that ad, you know, that had hospice uh, spelled out and how to pronounce it and defined it. And that's, you know, that's amazing, right? To think that, that I mean, I always say when I started my career, there were no hospices in my state. There were a handful in the country the word palliative care did not exist in our vocabulary and there was no such thing as a palliative care program. And now we look at the statistics, you know, over 4,000 hospices, you know, 80% of hospitals that, you know, have a palliative care program, like that's amazing. You know, it is amazing to see what decades of avoidance and silence have now resulted in remarkable remarkable change such that people like you are getting a doctorate in a field that now exists, right? I mean, that's so huge. It's so amazing. Yeah, I think, and you know, and I think that's the thing, Betty, that I um, am I'm stunned by, because I think even in palliative care, there are a lot of people who have no idea of the history. They have no idea um, of this connection of, you know, this volunteer movement, this Medicare benefit, which for better or for worse defines hospice, that then there was this movement about palliative care because it was like hospice wasn't enough to then sort of now, you know, a bit of a schism sometimes between hospice and palliative care. Um, and so I think, you know, that's an interesting part because I think, you know, we want the students to be thinking, okay, you know, there's always a context to things and things will change, um, but like, what is it that we need to keep? What is it that we not? How do we still stay together with this principle of care, you know? Right. And I would say, you know, we are just barely at the jumping off point. You know, we're, we're it's not like we are late in history today. Like this is 2021, we are barely touching the surface of the future of palliative care. Um, we are, we certainly, I think in the last few years, so for example, with the release of the last, you know, edition of the national guidelines, um, just three years ago, we made that turn to say, this can no longer be just about specialty palliative care. The important point here is how do we integrate palliative care in all systems of care for all people who are seriously ill and that is, you know, that is huge. It is remarkable. And, but again, you know, I, when I started my career, 
And then when we first started hospice, I can remember clearly for the first several years across the country, about 95% easily of all hospice patients were cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And it would, it would be rare, you know, that you would, in fact, if, you know, you heard that a pulmonary patient or heart failure patient was admitted, you'd be like, what, you know, how would that happen? It was so rare. And of course now every day, you know, I have a conversation with someone different about, we really need this in, you know, really increased palliative care in renal disease, in, you know, chronic pulmonary disease, in neurological diseases, in chronic serious pediatric illness. Um, so the, we have, we, so we started, which was great, but we started with a really narrow vision. And, you know, again, living through history, one of the things that, that boy really comes to my mind and is deep in my soul and will ever be there is living through the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I really remember that as a time where we still were hospice, you know, was very narrowly defined. There was no such thing as palliative care and it was completely cancer focused, but suddenly here was this population of people with this very serious disease that had just horrendous impact on symptoms and quality of life. And so suddenly, you know, hospices were, were there to say, we can provide care for people with AIDS. Again, there was no palliative care. You know, there was no effort to provide people with AIDS with, you know, the kind of care that they really needed from the time of diagnoses. But at least there was, you know, that cushion of support that many people with AIDS were cared for by hospice programs. Um, but I think that opened a door. In my mind, it opened a door in a way because suddenly it wasn't just about cancer patients. It was about the kind of care. And, you know, if, if, this, if hospice could also serve people with AIDS, maybe it could serve, you know, some other people. Um, and I remember, in the, I remember the earliest days when, you know, people in cardiology started saying, wait a minute, my patients are just as sick as your patients. Why are they not getting, you know, this palliative care? And so it's been like an unfolding of one population at a time. Um, but we have so much to offer across so many settings. There's, um, the, you know, the opportunities are, are really just there waiting in, in so many ways. It's such well, an exciting time. I think, you know, also like what you mentioned, I, you know, I, I remember caring for the AIDS patients too, and, and just sort of trying to figure out what the hospice benefit and what was going to be covered. And it was a younger group. And, and as you said, it was, um, it was, could be a really bad death. And I think the other part for me as a practitioner, you know, it threw into a whole different light than what we had to deal from before was the whole ethical parts, right? Because to me, that was when this whole, um, underground movements started that if we couldn't help them, they were creating all these other protocols and, you know, having to have discussions about hastening death because they knew what was going to happen with this dementia. They knew all of that. Um, and so it sort of felt to me like it, um, uh, took us out of our naivete and also kind of moved us from teenagers to adults, right? Mm -hmm. In having to have these conversations in a very different way. Um, and I think, you know, it's an interesting part when you when you think back of 
how much also, you know, I think because of the trajectory of cancer being more um, predictable at that time, I think, you know, it's still changed now with all of our therapies, but AIDS being so much more unpredictable, right? That it was, it was sort of in a certain sense, when you think about crises, you know, it's this in, in a kind of a different version of like what we've been going through with COVID, right? That palliative care got pushed to the front of COVID, being present, not taking over from our critical care colleagues, but really stepping with them. Um, and, and so, you know, what is that going to bring? Because I think, you know, we're at an interesting point and, and for the students so that, you know, Betty's daughter is a critical care physician. So she's been living this in a personal and a, um, in a professional way too, but of, um, you know, what, how is that, how are we going to kind of come through this so that we, we were there at a, at this pandemic and helped when it really was end of life. And we need to kind of help kind of space that out again and say, we were here because you needed us, but we're going to go back upstream. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I, um, I mean, one of my memories and something I like to think about is I, I had a graduate student when uh, I first came to California. So this is, you know, 20, however many, so it was like 1987. So, uh, you know, what is that 40 years ago, a long time ago, um, or I guess 34 years ago. Anyway, she became a palliative care nurse. And I remember her calling me when she then uh, was getting her first job as a advanced practice nurse in a big hospital system. And she was telling me that um, when she, they were orienting her and she was starting her work, they said, you know, palliative care is not allowed to walk onto the organ transplant unit. Like, do not walk past this door. Like, they will call security. Like, you know, palliative care cannot go here. Um, and they were very serious. They're very serious. So this is a large academic center. And so there are all these patients, you know, awaiting lung transplants, you know, heart transplants, uh, et cetera. And, you know, we all know what that really means and how many of those patients are ever gonna get a transplant or those who do will survive their transplant. But so, you know, we would all say that is a unit that needs palliative care. And yet at that point in time, which wasn't all that many years ago, it was, we'll call security if palliative care tries to come here. I mean, that's how crazy it was. But then, you know, I loved the day that she called me back to say, uh, you know, what happened is that, that there was one physician who had practiced in another state who moved, started working on that unit. And that physician said, are you all crazy? You know, I've always used palliative care for my transplant patients and I'm gonna use them now. And so there, and so he started referring to the palliative care team, which, you know, then they could come into the unit. And of course, you all know the end of that story. It took a matter of a few months before the nurses were rioting on that unit to say, this is, you know, unacceptable. Like we've seen how much they help these patients. Why can they not help, you know, other patients? And of course the nurse, you know, called me back to say, guess what? They've now, they've now, we have a meeting because they've now asked me to see every patient on the unit. So, you know, now I have a different problem. Like I can't see every patient on the organ transplant unit. But so I think it's the same sort of thing with COVID that, um, you know, we've made a lot of headway in the last 10 plus years with palliative care being accepted for people, you know, a lot of older people and people with serious chronic illness. Like there's 
not a lot of contention around going to see the heart failure patient or the severe COPD patient um, in stage renal disease. But they're, you know, still it's a very different thing when you have the 20 year old with COVID in the ED, right? And the person who was really healthy yesterday. Um, and now we are facing this pandemic where young people are ill as well as older people and people are declining rapidly. And so I think that COVID, you know, I think we will look back and say COVID changed our field of palliative care. And I see it in terms of, you know, the people who were really not yet, you know, converted to the importance of palliative care, such as ICUs in many instances, EDs, um, that they began to see, oh, that's what palliative care can do for us. The other thing that I think really happened in the time as we're still living, you know, COVID is that having this pandemic that was affecting millions of people was the first time, you know, in my career that we, the healthcare providers were also so threatened about getting this disease ourselves and dying ourselves. So the personal threat was so enormous and grief, you know, the, um, just the profound grief of staff who were witnessing, you know, in many settings, 10, 20 deaths a day I mean, we all saw the images of the trailers parked out in the parking lot to, you know, be the makeshift morgues because there were just too many bodies. And so I think people also began to recognize the value of palliative care to be there to support the staff. So there are, you know, such amazing examples around the country where um, the palliative care team was there to, you know, be in the unit and support that new graduate that was having, you know, the fourth death you know, of her shift um, and to, you know, to be there as some of our colleagues, you know, became ill. And so I, I think there's a whole different awareness, recognition, understanding of palliative care as a part of the healthcare system. And I, I think we will look back, you know, at this time and recognize that much like the AIDS epidemic, that this, you know, time of COVID also is a turning point for our field. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting part to think of because you know, as you said, I mean, we're still in it. Um, I'm not convinced we will be out of it for a little bit more time in spite of our safety changes um, by the CDC. And I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, here's the present time and how do we hold all of our palliative care providers knowing that many of them have experienced, I would say PTSD. Um, and, you know, here we're so used to taking care of patients and families, and then we've got to take care of ourselves. And then I, I think also being prepared that we are going to lose by choice um, people who leave the profession. Um, and then, you know, I do think, you know, we are seeing um, some dark sides of, you know, people committing suicide that we just didn't hold them. And, and so that to me also is a wake up call of how much palliative care of the psychosocial part, because it's in our language to actually talk about the challenge of the work. I don't know very many other specialties that, you know, they sort of are mandating that you talk about how hard this work is. Right. I think that, I mean, for example, just the notion of bereavement. And, uh, you know, I think for, for so many clinicians would say, oh, you know, bereavement, grief, bereavement, oh, that's 
somebody else is going to, you know, takes care of that, right? Um, I took care of the patient, like the end. And so it's somebody else out there in the community, maybe that I hope is offering some bereavement support. But I think that during this time of COVID, I think there's severe PTSD that we've only begun to even recognize it has not been fully, you know, experienced. And I think that we are dealing with staff grief. We are dealing with the loss of our own colleagues. We're dealing with just too much loss. Um, and the fact that, you know, the personal threat, I think those first few months with the lack of protective equipment, the personal threat that clinicians felt was unlike anything I've known before. Um, so, you know, we are really, I think there is a new awareness of, of the, you know, moral distress of, of staff stress and grief and bereavement. And I'm, you know, really hoping that the palliative care community will have a lot to offer, uh, particularly over the next year or two, because I think the palliative care teams have a lot they can do to support staff who are experiencing this extreme PTSD. And also I hope that we use this, you know, opportunity to rethink, like how could we possibly not have, you know, support in place for staff? How can we possibly not, um, you know, have a plan for, you know, providing relief for staff? Um, I hope that we've learned. I, I can't imagine that anyone would think you know, the, the last day we take off the last mask that we're returning to some, you know, pre, you know, kind of normal times that the world is forever changed. We are forever changed. Healthcare is forever changed and certainly palliative care is forever changed. So, um, so what are some of the other issues that you think our students should be thinking of now um, that, that are, that they may not have been thinking about when they came in or they might not have, ex have experienced or that are just some things that people don't normally think about. Right. Um, you know, I was talking to a, a university professor and, and uh, we were, she was talking about talking to her incoming students. This has been a couple years ago, but she made the comment that most of the jobs that her new students would be going into are jobs that don't exist today, right? That when you're sitting there in your chair, if this is your first semester, you know, of your doctoral program, yes, you're here to prepare for a new, new life in your career for some new potential, new career. But the reality is that the world is changing so rapidly and that honestly, the opportunities for palliative care that you will walk into when you finish this degree are opportunities that I can't even tell you what they are because they don't exist. And so what does that mean? I think what that means is that you are coming into this program to learn, you know, some, some theoretical knowledge and some history about the field and a lot of clinical skills and you're largely coming into this program to become researchers and leaders. But the world that you will enter even a couple of years from now, completing your PhD, 
will be a world that has evolved while you were in this doctoral program, right? And so, I mean, just, you know, if you, there's one factor and if you took that one factor and disregarded everything else, it would make the case for palliative care. And that is the aging population. We have no plan, <laughs> like the, the number of people who will be living for decades with serious chronic illness, that in itself is the need for the entire field of palliative care. Um, but then add to that, you know, what we've now learned about the importance of palliative care in acute care. We haven't touched the potential for palliative care in mental, mental health. We have not served the most underserved communities. Um, the world of pediatrics exploding with opportunity for palliative care, exploding with opportunity. In our LNIC project, I'm working this week actually with a task force that's been created within our LNIC project to look at perinatal care. And we started our pediatric palliative care. And then after a few years, there was this huge demand for we need this in neonatal care. And so we had to create, you know, palliative care for neonatal care. Now there's this big demand for, we need palliative care to be integrated for perinatal care for every parent, you know, every family that is now with all of our genetic testing, et cetera, that we know that these are babies that are gonna be born with life-threatening or very serious illness. We need to upstream even for, you know, upstream the upstream, right? And so, it, the opportunities for palliative care in pediatrics, you know, the opportunities in geriatrics, the opportunities to really revisit in a very important way, care for people in nursing homes, um, all health systems. You know, we need models of care and we need, we need data, we need research, we need rigorous science to create the evidence base. So, I think there's so many opportunities and many of the jobs that await someone with a PhD in palliative care may be very different than, you know, sometimes they think, oh, you get a PhD, you get a faculty role. There's, there's gonna be so many opportunities, so many places that knowledge and palliative care will, will just be you know, such a valuable asset uh, to, to make an impact in healthcare. I don't think you're alone in that thinking, Dr. Farrell. In a couple of weeks since I leaked word of this uh, of program, hopefully being launched this fall, we have over 100 people on the list who say they're going to apply. So right. I think that you are not alone in that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and I think that, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, I was just going to say the flip side of what you're saying is I think you've kind of made a good case for every healthcare provider should at least possess those basic primary palliative care skills. Would you agree? Absolutely. That's what, you know, primary palliative care means. And that's what pick up the, you know, the, the last issue of the national palliative care guidelines. And what it says is we need primary palliative care. Every clinician that cares for a seriously ill person needs to have, right? If I'm diagnosed with cancer and I go see my oncologist, you better believe that I hope that oncologist or the oncology nurse in that clinic or the social worker in that clinic, you better believe that I want them to know how to manage my pain, communicate well with me, help me make decisions, support my family, offer bereavement support. That, that should be an expectation 
Like we should be shocked at the notion that you care for people with heart failure and you don't know palliative care, right? So primary palliative care, you know, is enormous. The one other thing I would add is this notion of interdisciplinary education and training. Because, you know, I, I represent still the, you know, generations of people taught in silos, right? Nurses were taught with nurses. Nurses were taught with the lens of nursing. And then, you know, we all leave our silos and then move into health systems where we try to work together. And we realize we do not speak the same language, right? So probably the biggest contribution, you know, that hospice made was this notion of, wait a minute, this, when we say this is interdisciplinary care, we mean it, right? And so over these last few decades, we've been learning about what that really looks like. You know, what does interdisciplinary care mean? And how do interdisciplinary teams work together? And so, you know, what you've created is a PhD program in palliative care, but I would argue even more importantly than that, what you've created is an interdisciplinary doctoral program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and that is the skill set you know, that people need. And so the fact that you will graduate from this program with a PhD in this field of palliative care that is absolutely vital to the entire healthcare system of the future. And you've done that in an interdisciplinary you know, program Again, you will have knowledge and skills beyond you know, anything that we can imagine. It's amazing and so important. And what I was just gonna say though, is taking it one further, like if we think about what COVID taught people is that beyond even primary palliative care, that all clinicians need a communication skill set, that all clinicians need right. um, some of these pieces. So you know, maybe there's also a way for us to get palliative care principles, whether they're doing primary or specialty, kind of embedded more into the healthcare culture, right? Right, right. Um, and so I, and, and I think this other part about, um, uh, you know, I, where I thought you might go, or you mentioned a little bit was this whole part about um, health equity. And we in palliative care, you know, still have some work to do with that. We can see by the hospice statistics and by the palliative care statistics that we are still, you know, meeting mostly a white population and we haven't kind of gone into the community. So, you know, I think also the opportunity to move into the communities and sort of um, not kind of focus everything on the hospital because where we know some of the patients who may be part of populations that have underserved or not served, they want to be in their community. And so how are we going to pivot to meet the needs of the community? And, and, right. and that offers a lot of opportunity as, as well. Right, absolutely. So are there any things, Betty, that worry you right now or that you feel like mm, we need to pay attention to this as we move forward so that we make sure that we're sailing in the right direction? I think, you know, the demand for palliative care is the most worrisome thing because it is so enormous. And, um, you know, one could argue that, you know, as, as we moved into the COVID you know, pandemic that I think many people would say every person in the building needs palliative care, right? Because you're probably in the hospital because you have COVID or you are so sick they couldn't keep you home despite the fact that we have this pandemic. Um, people are isolated from their families that 
that, and so there was this such, such this apparent like, wow, right. this, how can we not provide palliative care, you know, to everybody kind of idea. And so I think that's really the challenge how, when we say these words that we need to rethink what is the role of specialty palliative care. Mm-hmm. And I think we need some new models of what specialty palliative care looks like. And then I also think we need to, we say these words, primary palliative care, but we need, you know, that will take new models. It will take operationalizing. What does that really mean? And um, I'll just sort of mention one project. We have a NCI training grant right now, which is in its fifth year and it's um, R25 funded by NCI to take oncology advanced practice nurses. And so these, you cannot be in palliative care. You can't have palliative care, especially training, but oncology advanced practice nurses. So this is like the nurse that runs the breast clinic, you know, the nurse giving chemotherapy, the, you know, oncology clinical specialist on the oncology unit, teaching staff and doing staff development. We're bringing together these oncology advanced practice nurses. And then we are training them through the LNET curriculum to give them the palliative care skill set and knowledge on top of their oncology knowledge. And then we're sending them back home to implement and really integrate palliative care in their work, their daily work as an oncology nurse. And part of that experience is we, they had to come with a letter of support from the palliative care team because we wanted to know that these nurses would have the support of palliative care. And we are also requiring that they spend some time observing the palliative care team. We, we can teach them in the classroom. They need to witness palliative care happening, right? So that's an example of a model of really taking this notion of primary palliative care, but then how do you make that happen? And so I think that will be a huge part of the future is how do we integrate this knowledge that we have about good communication skills and advanced care planning and psychosocial support and spiritual care. How do we take these elements and as the palliative care specialist really guide their integration into the larger healthcare system? So the, the work we do will need to be you know, reimagined as palliative care specialists, but then the role of the primary care clinician also needs to be reimagined. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, that's, I mean, it's fascinating to think about because I think we heard from, um, you know, the other part of just the changing technology of what we imagine now, just even being in a technological world. And so, you know, how will that all come together? Um, any other advice that you would give to our students as they go out and think about this and start in a leadership position just by taking, by finishing a PhD program? Yeah. I mean, I think people who go to a doctoral program, the purpose of going to a doctoral program is really those two things. One is to develop research skills so that you can really contribute to the evidence base. And the second thing is to learn how to be a leader. And that's really where your energy should be. When it comes to the research component, I would say find the topic you love. Find your passion. You know, every one of you is going to sit in some course in this curriculum. I'm sure that's, you know, the find your dissertation topic, right? And dissertation seminar kinds of topics. But, you know, and lots of people have ideas what you should do. So my advice to you is 
find what you're passionate about, you know, find what you wake up thinking about, find what just gets you energized. And that's where you should do your research, right? Research done well should just look like passion, right? Uh, it should look like the finest form of patient advocacy that's ever existed. So that's my advice about research. Find, find what's burning in your soul and by God, that's what your dissertation should be about. I think when it comes to leadership, you know, I'm learning a lot about leadership, being a part of the Cambia Sojourn Scholar Program and some other, you know, leadership kind of mentorship experiences. And, you know, what I would say there is, I think the world of palliative care is also, you know, teaching some things about what leadership looks like. Um, you know, the leader of healthcare for the future is going to need a different set of skills than, you know, the leader of 10 years ago. Um, we are learning that, yes, organizations need, you know, people with good, strong business sense and budget knowledge and strategic planning. But, you know, organizations need leaders that are emotionally mature and that um, are great mentors and people who have vision. And so I would just say, you know, as you're learning in the same way as you're learning to be a good researcher, follow your heart. I would say as you're learning to be a good leader, don't abandon the field of palliative care, right? Be a palliative care leader. And so palliative care leaders bring a different skill set, um, bring what you know about good communication and compassion um, and self-care and you know, all of those things, all of those elements that make the field of palliative care what it is, those are the things to nurture. Those are the palliative care leaders that we need for the future. Yeah. Well, that I think is amazing advice and really good for our students to think about. Lynn, do you have any other comments or thoughts? I think Dr. Farrell hung the moon. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. We are so grateful. And we know that um, the students who are listening to this will really have learned so much about just reflection and moving forward in the field. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Farrell. Absolutely. It's a, it's a huge investment. And I know to enter a doctoral program is a huge personal and professional commitment. But, uh, you know, I've always said I, I am grateful for every day. Um, and I am so grateful that I made the decision to get my doctoral degree because it, it just, you know, it gives you just that strength you need to do the passionate work that we all want to do. So congratulations. And um, I can't wait to see the wonderful things to come out of this program. It's amazing. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.